Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about a concept uh, in the realm of genetics and reproduction, uh, a concept known as mutational meltdown. Very enticing name. Rob, I understand you became interested in, in mutational meltdown earlier this week. What, what got you going on this? Uh, well, it actually didn't have anything to do directly with um, with any Melt movies we might have been talking about on Weird House Cinema. Um, I, I actually, I think I was on a walk with my family and I said, hey, uh, I think we're going to need an episode for Thursday. What should we do it on? And, there, and my, my wife and my son were like, oh, you should do it on um, asexual reproduction. So, okay. Uh, um, I just started look, looking around a little bit, and yeah, the, this uh, particular term kind of jumped out at me. I wasn't familiar with it, and it, um, it it basically gets down into, and I think for our purposes here on the show, you know, it's a reason to sort of provide an overview of sort of asexual reproduction versus sexual reproduction as sort of competing ways of of um, going about sort of the same thing uh, for an organism, uh, but one with more short-term benefits versus long-term benefits. And I don't know, I just found it to be kind of a neat way to re-examine and, and, and think about uh, these, these concepts that I imagine we've covered on the show before and many of you out there have, have uh, encountered in, in varying formats. Sure. Well, I know over the years we have alluded to uh, the the big question in biology of like where sex comes from, the where, when, and why of of sexual reproduction as a, as a part of the history of organisms on planet Earth. Not going to solve that problem today, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think maybe uh, this little subtopic could help shed a little bit of light there. Yeah. So 
Let's let's start with the basics, though. Uh, we're going to just uh, approach it as if uh, you know you're not really familiar with with any of the the topics that we're discussing here. So, asexual reproduction versus sexual reproduction. Uh, on a very basic level, here's how it all goes down. So, with sexual reproduction, you have the offspring of two genetic parents inheriting a mix of genes from those parents, genetically distinguishing itself from either parent. The resulting genetic variation is highly adaptive because it provides individuals with varying traits that may prove necessary for survival in an ever-changing environment. Uh, the resulting genetic diversity makes the population more resistant to disease as well. I think one of the theories we've talked about before is that uh, an advantage of, of sexual reproduction is that it helps protect the host organism against various types of parasites by uh, introducing genetic variability that makes it harder for the parasite to, to target each successive generation of the, uh, of the host. Yeah, um, this is this is a clumsy analogy at best, but um, I can't help but think too about, like, say that because yeah, because uh, essentially, when you're talking about asexual reproduction, you're talking essentially about making a clone of oneself, and so uh, the clone army in in uh, the Star Wars prequels, um, highly susceptible to say um, uh, a single order coming out and telling them to turn on the Jedi, that sort of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. But so that's just a very very rough idea of, of how to think about it. Um, but uh, more specifically for our purposes here, another key benefit uh, that, uh, that comes up in the literature I was looking at is that um, you can think of sex and genetic recombination as ultimately a, a means of purging uh, uh, deleterious mutations. Right. So the impact of mutations that might be harmful to the organism uh, can, be, uh, can be blunted by sexual recombination. Yeah, yeah. So you end up with this. I mean, r roughly speaking, you, you know, you have kind of like a, a randomization of these different traits, and the individuals that end up, the offspring with, that end up with the, um, the 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 negative traits, the harmful traits, they don't survive. The ones that um, uh, that have been purged of those mutations do survive, and therefore it can purge the mutation from a particular lineage. Okay. All right. So moving on to asexual reproduction. Uh, this is a case in which you have the offspring of a single genetic parent inheriting the genes of the parent, making it a clone identical to the parent. The advantage here is that you can reproduce rapidly without all of the energy expenditure of mating. And uh, I mean, that's a pretty big statement to think about uh, because uh, so many organisms we end up discussing on the podcast, you know, what is the, the key thing that makes them interesting? Well, in some cases, many cases, it's, it's how they acquire their food. But in other cases, it's how do they get a mate? How do they attract a mate or pursue a mate? And it ends up taking up a whole lot of time, a whole lot of energy. And what if you didn't have to do that? What if instead you could just essentially clone yourself? It would be very convenient and safer in a lot of cases because, I mean, it varies by organism. But in many cases, yeah, if you have to go seeking out a mate, uh, it is not only, you, you know, an energy expense to go looking around, but you're also often removing yourself from safe locations and going into dangerous ones. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like when you get the um, some sort of new kit to assemble some IKEA furniture, right? And the and if you the first thing you notice is that on the instructions it says, "Oh, you have to have two people to do this," and you're like, "Oh, that totally wrecks my day." Now I've got to get my significant other or a friend to help with this. We've got to align our schedules, and we have to both work together to build this thing, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to one where I can just build it myself and and put it where it needs to go in the house. 
Now, there are uh, multiple types of asexual reproduction, and we're not going to go into all of them, but you have you know, all sorts of things like asexual budding and so forth. Um, uh, the sources I was looking at uh, dealt a lot with um, parthenogenesis, which occurs widely in, in vertebrates. Uh, this word stems from the Greek for virgin creation, uh, parthenos plus genesis. Okay, so th this would describe, for example, a lot of vertebrates, like maybe some lizards or fish that can uh, give birth without ever have without ever having their gametes fertilized by a member of the opposite sex. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about about lizards, geckos, uh, various insects, uh, particularly some uh, some sharks, and it, it's of course very important to note that there are um, obligate uh, sexual reproducers, and then there. Are uh, obligate asexual reproducers, and but then there are also organisms that can do either, depending on environmental pressure. So uh, a classic example of a sexually re reproducing organism engaging in asexual reproduction is, of course, when an individual cannot find a mate. It's kind of there as, uh, I guess you could think of it as kind of a, um, a backup plan mm -hmm. um, uh, that, uh, or some sort of, a, you know, an emergency button that can be uh, pushed. And this has been the case with some of the famous examples of, say, sharks or lizards, such as the Komodo dragon, uh, reproducing in captivity. Uh, these, uh, you know, so-called virgin births uh, that will suddenly occur and shock zookeepers. So the ideal is to mix and match your genetic material with somebody else's, but in a pinch, you could just make a copy of yourself. If you're the right species, correct. Right. Yeah. And if I'm remembering correctly, this also pops up in the plot of Jurassic Park, right? Something to do with the way that they're um, recreating dinosaur DNA using amphibian DNA. Well, I don't know if this is parthenogenesis or if it would be different. I think what they say, at least in the movie, I don't remember what mm -hmm. happens in the book. In the movie, they say that because they use some frog DNA to cover up uh, patches in the DNA sequence, the, this I'm just recalling from memory what Mr. DNA tells us, um, <laughs> that, uh, that some frogs are able to spontaneously change sex in a single-sex environment, and thus, even though all of the dinosaurs in the park were supposed to be female, some changed into males and thus were sexually reproducing. Ah, okay. I think that's the main thing. I'm either misremembering that or maybe there's something from one of the later like Jurassic World films that I'm uh, only like half processing here. All right. So you have these two basic ways of reproducing then. This, of course, means that there are drawbacks to either one. So in sexual reproduction, again, you got to put a whole lot of energy and time into mating behaviors. Uh, it, it necessitates the existence of males which in some cases like do little or nothing else, mm -hmm. like in, you know, an entire division of, of the species just for reproduction. Um, mating can prove fatal in and of itself, um, not necessarily in a way that actually um, you know, has any impact on, on, on the species, but still it's like, the, again, you get into these situations where the male's whole role is reproduction and then afterwards it has no purpose uh, except maybe death. Uh, and it can, of course, also it create... It could be nutrition. <laughs> could be nutrition, yeah, so it's not a complete waste. But uh, also just mating in general creates opportunities for predators in a number of ways. You could, it could be something very specific like, well, while you're mating, it's possible that something could, could prey on you. But also, again, just think of all the, uh, the lengths that uh, creatures end up going to in mate selection and, uh, and so forth. Uh, various examples of this, even if it's just, say, um, sexual dimorphism, uh, could mean that one member of the species is more likely to be consumed than the other. Yeah.
It makes me think about all the, I don't know, like birds that essentially uh, uh, where male birds are trying to attract mates specifically by being conspicuous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you got to think that that also that comes with some amount of predation risk, at least in many cases. Yeah. Uh, another th- thing could be, yes, yeah, particular places you know, they have to travel to uh, in order to engage in the mating, et cetera. Um, but another um, drawback to sexual reproduction is that if it's your only option, it means that isolated members just of, of a particular species or population just cannot reproduce. And it also means that sufficiently reduced populations are just already at a dead end. Mm-hmm. Now, in asexual reproduction, there's also a potential dead end there as well. Because if you don't have genetic variation occurring, if you're basically just putting out the same model after the same model after the same model, it may well improve. It may well prove impossible for the species to adapt or to change. Um, so it's you know it's, if you're just putting out the same model after the same model, and like the um, the market is the same for that product, then I guess you don't have anything to worry about so long as the market doesn't change. If suddenly if the the demand for a particular um, you know toy or item were to were to alter in some way and you couldn't alter the uh, the product then you'd be in trouble and the the same goes for uh, any kind of biological form what happens when say things begin to dry up or there's warming or cooling or whatever the case may be um, sexual reproduction is what gives you the ability to to bust out these these different um, variations on the genetic code that could prove uh, adaptive to change yeah, it gives you options, diversity. Yeah, yeah, diversifies your your portfolio. Um, now we mentioned uh, like disease and parasites already, so that's very much uh, the case. If you just have uh, a whole bunch of clones, then they all have the same susceptibility to illness or parasites. Uh, overall, the big drawback is just a lack of genetic diversity, uh, which can also result in the accumulation of harmful mutations. And another thing about the the difference between the two, though, that I, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about too much is that it being a difference between short-term and long-term benefits. So asexual reproduction is great for rapidly growing a population during a time of plenty, but the resulting population can run into problems long-term. Meanwhile, sexual reproduction requires more energy and time, but generates diversity that may come in handy in the long-term, again, when there are changes and obstacles that arise. Mm-hmm. Anyway, coming back to this this idea that um, via asexual reproduction, you can have this accumulation of, of harmful genetic changes. Uh, this brings us to the topic of Muller's ratchet, which is not something I was familiar with uh, previously. Uh, the basic theory here is that long-term reproduction, uh, particularly asexual reproduction, but, uh, but the, some of the, the studies we're looking at, they're also looking at it um, uh, with sexual reproduction, uh, Basically, you see this accumulation of harmful genetic mutations, and after thousands of generations pass by, you can eventually reach a tipping point, uh, which uh, we refer to as mutational meltdown. And we'll get back to mutational meltdown in just a second. But uh, interestingly, the the namesake for Muller's ratchet is Herman Joseph Muller, who lived 1890 through 1967, an American geneticist, uh, mostly known for his work on mutagenesis and uh, for being like an outspoken um, critic of and uh, and just sort of um, communicator on the dangers of radioactive fallout. He won the 1946 Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine. 
And he was also the father of mathematician and computer scientist David E. Muller, uh, who also has various things named after him. So you'll find a number of um, things in both genetic, uh, you know, co- concepts and what have you in genetics and, uh, and mathematics that have the Muller name attached to them. Now, Rob, uh, before you suggested this, I had never heard of mutational meltdown or Muller's ratchet, uh, at least as far as I know. Uh, but one of the things that I got really interested in here is uh, how it, it violates sort of the simple assumptions that you make when when you uh, th- think about evolution on a surface level, because, mm-hmm. of course, it makes this reference to the idea of harmful genetic mutations accumulating over time in a species. And at a surface level, you might think, well, wait a minute. Why would harmful genetic mutations accumulate? Isn't natural selection supposed to get rid of those? And so over time, with enough enough opportunities, yes, mutations that bring more harm than benefit to an organism's uh, ability to survive and reproduce will tend to, to disappear. But under certain circumstances, bad genes can accumulate. And one of the, the key concepts to understand here is what's known as genetic drift. So genetic drift is a change in the frequency of a particular gene variant, also known as an allele, in a population due to random chance rather than to natural selection. So random genetic drift is always happening. It's always going on in the background in the evolution of species. While you might think of natural selection as sort of uh, acting in the foreground, amplifying or or, uh, diminishing alleles because they are helpful or harmful, so you might think of, say, a, a gene for blue feathers in some kind of bird. That gene might increase in the population, not for any reason having to do with blue feathers making the bird survive or reproduce more. Uh, maybe it, it's just, you know, sheer luck one, one season, or you know, maybe uh, there might be some kind of random thing that happens in the population, like maybe a big population of blue feathered individuals come across a big cache of food or something, or there is just uh, the the standard fluctuations in the sampling rate of the different alleles that get recombined in sexual reproduction. The smaller a population is, the more likely it is to be irreversibly changed by random trends in genetic drift. Now, you might wonder, how would that work? If, if the trends in genetic drift are just random, it's just chance, how would that cause irreversible changes? I think one way you might be able to compare this uh, is if you think about gambling. Okay, imagine you're making bets on somebody flipping a coin. Mm-hmm. If you have an infinite pot of money to bet with, you could just keep doing this forever, right? Like you might get a run of good luck. You might get a run of bad luck. You might call the coin wrong, you know, uh, I don't know how many times it would be plausible, eight times in a row and lose a lot of money. But eventually, on average, you'd ha- have a winning streak again and you'd win your money back. As long as you can keep gambling, as long as you've got like an infinite pot to play from. But if you are gambling with a fixed amount of money, you eventually will hit a random run of bad luck and lose it all. You will play to extinction. Very fitting, very fitting. So for my analogy here, you could compare the um, the the size of your purse you're going in to gamble with with the size of the population where the random genetic drift is happening. Genetic drift in a small population can easily drive certain alleles extinct, even though those alleles had no negative effect on survival. 
The other side of uh, the other side of that is that in small populations, random genetic drift can also do the inverse. It can take an allele and make it the only version of that gene left in the population, present in 100% of individuals. And there's a term for this, the, the population gen- genetics term uh, for when an allele becomes present in the entire population is fixation. When, when that allele is the only version of that gene left, it is said to be fixed in the population. Everybody's got it. And of course, once a gene variant is fixed in a population, of course, that means the individuals in that population are stuck with it, you know, unless there is new information introduced. Now, that could be maybe a random mutation causes a new version of that gene to appear and then it can maybe compete. Or there is inflow of new uh, alleles of that gene, maybe by interbreeding with another population uh, or something like that. But for a closed population, uh, it, once a gene variant is fixed, they're stuck with it. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, the important thing to realize is that alleles uh, don't have to be the best version of that gene. They don't have to be helpful to survival or reproduction in order to become fixed in a population. Uh, In big populations, harmful versions of genes will not tend to dominate over time. They will tend to get removed or remain in the background. But in small populations, because you're essentially gambling with a small purse, those deleterious alleles can become fixed just through bad luck. So you imagine maybe every season within a population, you you pick a randomly assorted number of the individuals in that population. You say, whichever allele they've got, make another copy of that one. And then you just keep doing that over and over. You can get random results where suddenly a gene that's not very good for the population is suddenly the only one left. Mm-hmm. So that's how genetic drift can cause uh, deleterious, uh, harmful genes to become fixed in a population. Uh, But I was wondering, okay, so what's the deal with this idea of mutational meltdown? What's happening there? Well, I was reading about this in a a biology textbook I found called Practical Conservation Biology, uh, edited by David Lindenmeyer and Mark Bergman. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, the authors mention is that every population carries some load in the background of deleterious recessive genes. Um, but the core theory of, uh, of mutational meltdown, again, it's, it's something that really applies in particular to small populations. That's where it's really dangerous. The authors write, quote, in small populations, the dominant genetic process is drift. If the size of the breeding population is very small, then random drift can overwhelm natural selection and a population can accumulate and become fixed for quite deleterious mutations. If the decline in fitness that results from the accumulation of new new mutations reduces fecundity, so reduces birth rates, and reduces survival to the extent that the population declines, feedback between random genetic drift and mutation is set in motion. As the population size decreases, random genetic drift becomes a more significant force, and the rate of fixation of deleterious mutations increases, further reducing population size. So it is this feedback loop between the the harmful mutations making the population smaller and thus increasing the effects of genetic drift compared to the effects of selection forces. Yeah, so at first you just have one wrong turn movie and then you have two wrong turn movies. And before you know it, there's like 20 of them and you, you haven't seen a single one, but you don't know that they all have some something to do with mutated hillbillies. 
it, yes, it's a vicious cycle of some kind. And uh, as a side note, by the way, this is not relevant to most of the species we'd be talking about, but just because I thought it was interesting, the authors in the context of this conservation biology book also mention how this applies in captive populations in a conservation context. So um, because captive populations of animals where, you know, there's concern for the species level survival, uh, because those might, those animals are not really competing in the wild to survive, it is very easy, in fact, for them to accumulate deleterious mutations in their genome uh, because you have this genetic drift factor, but then also the normal selection pressures are not really applying at all. Mm -hmm. So once the population is reintroduced into the wild, the buildup of all these deleterious mutations acquired through genetic drift can be quite harsh, and they say that this could explain uh, some examples of uh, basically poor performance of captive bred individuals of of endangered species after being released into the wild. Mm. Yeah, there, there's there's so many factors to take into account with with captive populations because yeah, on top of everything you just talked about, there's also the idea that some uh, species will just then uh, spontaneously asexually. Uh, produce offspring, which of course is not going to, that particular offspring is not going to be um, genetically diversified either. Uh, so uh, yeah, there, you have this this huge bottleneck potential there. One last thing from that book, the most common citations I see for the, the theoretical work on mutational meltdown are attributed to uh, papers by Lynch published in the 90s, the 1990s. Uh, but they, they do note uh, also in this book chapter that there have been some studies that looked for, so that's the theoretical work by Lynch, but there were some mm-hmm. studies that looked to try to find evidence of uh, what they call greater genetic loads, these accumulations of, of mutations um, in uh, small fruit fly populations. Uh, they uh, This was cited to Gilligan et al. in 2005, and they didn't find it. They didn't find evidence of these, uh, uh, of these loads they expected. So uh, I guess some questions about how the theory of mutational meltdown actually applies to populations in the wild. Yeah, yeah, it's it's my understanding that that yeah, we are dealing with with theories here and um and there there it's a continued challenge for um evolutionary biologists to find uh examples and potential examples of all of this and to to find these breakthrough examples that will help us better understand uh not only uh, this this whole question of potential mut- mutational meltdown but also just sort of the larger question again of like why is is sexual reproduction uh, more beneficial, uh, or seemingly more beneficial, like why sexual reproduction at all. But uh, anyway, as, as I understand it, uh, based on what we're looking at here, yeah, we have uh, Muller's ratchet, which is the theoretical process that then could bring us to this uh, this 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 end game of mutational meltdown. Uh, mutational meltdown in, in this regard would be considered a, a subclass of an extinction vortex. Uh, extinction vortex is a larger classification entailing different. Uh, environmental, genetic, and demographic factors. Uh, it's also worth noting, um, and perhaps inflating the obvious here, and that is that extinction is, in the long term, inevitable. All species eventually face extinction. And I've read that something like more than 99% of all species to ever exist have gone extinct. Uh, again, this is stuff that makes perfect sense when you spell it out, but also it can it can sort of... Um, mess with your uh, your short-term, uh, uh, short, uh, short-lived human brain when you start, again, thinking about the really long-term history of, um, of life on Earth. 
So, of course, one of the, the, the big obvious challenges to exploring all of this is that humans have only been around uh, on Earth and in a position to look for examples of things like mutational meltdown for a very short period of time. And if most asexual species or populations don't last very long, uh, due, you know, theoretically to, to Mueller's ratchet or to, you know, the stability of uh, sexual reproduction outlined in things like the Red Queen hypothesis, then the, the various examples of ancient asexual species that we have uh, that are more easy to, you know, to, to look to, those are going to be exceptions to the rule. And then this creates additional, you know, additional questions arise. Well, how has this asexual species uh, been able to survive these challenges, these rigors that we're identifying in the data here? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, one of the, the sources I was looking at, um, 2008's Quantifying the Threat of Extinction from Muller's Ratchet in the Diploid Amazon Mali. This is from Lowe and Lamach. Uh, they point out that, yeah, these species are of considerable interest uh, to uh, researchers for these very reasons. That would be the Amazon molly? Uh, well, just in general, these sorts of species, uh, species that... Um, oh, I uh, see. Yeah. The ancient asexual species, sorry. Right, right. In, in this particular paper, this particular paper, the, the main focus, the Amazon molly, though, is also really interesting. This is a small asexual fish species that, that seems just prime for mutational meltdown. Uh, however, in modeling out the rate of harmful mutations in the species, uh, they ran into what they refer to in the paper as a genomic decay paradox. So in most of the models they ran, the expected time to extinction for the species was less than previous estimates on the age of the species. So it would seem that the species has outlived its genomic expiration date. Uh, if uh, Muller's ratchet and and uh, and, um, and mutational meltdown is indeed a, a factor, the authors write, "quote Several biological processes can individually or in combination solve this genomic decay paradox, including paternal leakage of undamaged DNA from sexual sister species, compensatory mutations, and many others." And they, of course, conclude that more research is ultimately required. Hmm. Another paper that, that looks into all this that I found uh, quite interesting was um, Deleterious Mutation Accumulation in Asexual uh, Tymema Stick Insects by Henry et al., published in 2012 in Molecular Biology and Evolution. Mm. In this paper, the researchers look at six independently derived asexual lineages and related sexual species of the uh, Tymema stick insects. So we're talking about closely related species. Some that reproduce sexually and others that reproduce asexually. The idea here, of course, is the closeness, the, the, they're, they're related, closely related to each other. So this would make the accumulation of deleterious mutations stand out more in the asexual species versus the sexual species. And that seems to be what they, they found. Quote, we found signatures of increased coding mutation accumulation in all six asexual tymema and for each of the three analyzed genes, with 3.6 to 13.4 fold higher rates in the asexuals as compared with the sexuals. They also point out that the coding mutations in the asexuals are likely associated with more strongly deleterious effects than the sexuals due to some specific molecular reasons that they uh, outline in the article. Mm -hmm. They conclude that, quote, 
deleterious mutation accumulation can differentially affect sexual and asexual lineages and support the idea that deleterious mutation accumulation plays an important role in limiting the long-term persistence of all female lineages. So according to this, as we were uh, alluding to earlier, a, a species that's mainly reproducing or totally reproducing asexually and just making clonal copies uh, will uh, will tend to one of the pressures acting against it will be the tendency to build up loads of mutations that are not helpful to survival. Yeah. So over time, worse mutations accumulate in the asexual species who do not diversify via uh, sexual recombination. They don't purify through purging harmful mutations uh, via sexual uh, reproduction either. And uh, in fact, the authors here specifically mention that sexual reproduction enhances the efficiency of purifying selection. This is fascinating. It's not, I, I mean, certainly the, the authors are not arguing that this is the case, but it's obviously, this is not like a smoking gun for the whole uh, idea here, but it does seem to, um, to give us uh, some, some, some interesting uh, evidence to, to back up some of these ideas, though, of course, also raising additional questions about, you know, what exactly is going on. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there's a, I've mentioned TED-Ed before. There's a great TED-Ed video titled No Sex, No Problem. And uh, I, I highly recommend checking that out. Um, it has a nice overview of um, sort of the, 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 diff- the, the different strategies of asexual versus sexual reproduction and, and, uh, and briefly mention some of the concepts we're talking about here. Uh, one thing that I, 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 th- I thought was interesting in this video is it points out that P. aphids are a great example of, a, of um, an organism that utilizes both sexual reproduction and asexual reproduction, uh, uh, but but depending on what the circumstances are. Mm-hmm. So with these particular aphids, when it's springtime, um, they are asexual reproducers. So it's like it's this is the these are the fat times. The, the like it's it's time to feed. It's time to reproduce. It's not time to worry too much about you know differentiating uh, your product. It's about just getting product on the shelves, and so that's what they do. But then when autumn rolls around, then it's time for sexual reproduction. So it's like, okay, this is our time to, uh, to think about the product. This is our time to, uh, to get experimental and see what we can do to, to change up our offering for the next season. So I, I thought that was just a, a, really, a really interesting like single species um, example that kind of sums up some of the benefits and some of the costs involved with asexual versus sexual reproduction. Like this is not the it's kind of like when you think about films in a series, for example, when it's time to make wrong turn two, you're not necessarily (laughs) thinking about, well, how am I going to recreate? No, you don't recreate. You just do what worked the first time, except more of it. This is the springtime of the wrong term franchise. Much later, when it's run out of gas, that's when you can you can sit down and think. Yeah, that's when you can be like, how do we reanalyze this? How do we reconceptualize Wrong Turn for a new audience? And and maybe we can hire Matthew Modine to be in it, too. And it makes sense that they both be part of your content strategy. You know, sometimes you do reruns, sometimes you do a crossover event. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I haven't actually seen a Wrong Turn movie, so... um, uh, please don't go out and see these movies just based on me casually mentioning them here. Rob strongly <laughs> recommends the Wrong Turn franchise. I can't remember if I have or not. Is it is that the one? There's like a guy in a in a muscle car who drives into the woods, and then he meets some I don't know some people, and they get chased by by dudes with hatchets. I, that sounds likely. I think that it's basically it's the hills have eyes, except in the woods, and there's yeah. like a million of these films. Uh, it's one of it's, there's something always kind of alarming to me when I realize there's like a whole franchise that has that has been around for for years and years. And I, I just not only have I not seen them, but I just have just a very surface level understanding of what they're about. You know, like I, I've, I've maybe never even seen a trailer for one of them. 
Yeah, there are a lot of series like that. And uh, it, I understand what you mean. Like, it can be alarming. Like, oh, I didn't even see the first Purge. We're on Purge 9 now. This is, yeah. I don't know what's <laughs> going on. I, I kind of can't start at this point. I'm not going to see these movies. Yeah, the Purge franchise, which I, I haven't seen any of those either, but I, I've read a bit more about them. So I'm I'm kind of intrigued by the way it has survived thus far. It seems like it is a franchise that definitely has its springtime and autumn cycles of how it, it, it puts out new content. Like some of these seem like definite, like, okay, it's time for another Purge. And then other times it's like, what can we do different with the Purge this time? And then it's like, cut that we're doing a tv series so just like 10 the purges and then we'll work about innovating after that i like that you have read about the purge (laughs) (laughs) you haven't seen it but you've done some research well you know it's it feels like it has more of a um you know you you got to stay on top of culture so Uh you got to read about the purge whereas somehow wrong turn movies maybe were less important culturally or so it seems to me Wrong turn movies, I'd say, are less high concept because Purge has an elevator pitch, right? Unless I uh, misunderstand it. The idea is all crime is legal on one night. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, And I think it it, it lends itself well to to referencing. You can be like, oh, wow, I I tried to drive across town the other day and it was like the Purge out there. You know, that makes Mm -hmm. sense. It's like you're saying something about how bad traffic was. But I don't know. Wrong turn franchises may be just a little harder to, you know, bring into your daily life. I guess some organisms also have more of an elevator pitch quality to them, though. You know, like uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the platypus. It, it, is a, it is a furry, poisonous duck. <laughs> but it's also kind of high concept. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it, it, it's high concept. Yeah, good creature. Have we ever done an episode on the platypus? I can't recall. Um, of course, it's diversified enough that it's um, inevitably come up, at least in passing, in any number of episodes. I don't know if we have. I just really, I said, I said uh, poisonous, but I think the correct word would be venomous. Mm. I don't know. We'll have to sort that out later. All right. Well, on on that note, I think we have uh, we have reached mutational meltdown for this episode. Um, but uh, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. I mean, especially if there's anyone out there who uh, who is is in the, the field of evolutionary biology. Perhaps you have some additional feedback, additional examples you'd like to bring to mind. Uh, let us know. You know, this is a topic that um, uh, that caught my attention. But I'd love to to see some more uh, uh, data on it. I'd love to see some some more studies of note. In the meantime, we'll remind you that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. That's usually where our discussions of films about mutants would wind up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, sometimes those, uh, those mutations accumulate in the core episodes as well. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.